This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, we're talking right, well, the morning after the uh, Cryptodata Motorrad Grand Prix von Austria. Austria. Ostrich, I was going to say. I'm just going to give up. It's been pathetic the whole weekend. Uh, my name's Adam Wheeler. I'm joined by Neil Morrison and David Emmett. We're still, well, we're 10 kilometers away from the Red Bull Ring. So that's why we're doing things nice and early. Uh, trying to bring you a wrap up of the Grand Prix, the round 13 of the MotoGP season. Of course, we're on video as well. It's still kind of scary for us as it is as for our viewers. Apologies for our general state. Um, but that's what happens when you've had. Um, a pretty busy weekend guys when it comes to news not just racing but everything we've seen and had to talk about it's been uh, as well as all those bloody steps up to the media center the, steps are, the, the steps are great the steps is you know every day is leg day at spielberg it's great i mean uh, it, it does mean that i get a bit of exercise which uh, those of you seeing me from the side will realize that i desperately need it also means that i can sit on my sofa for the next 10 days and not feel guilty about it yeah, step counters. Is that a good thing or is it just something? 100%, no, 100%. Because I think like on Tuesday, so my uh, my watch counts how many flights of stairs I went up. On Tuesday, it was like 50 and I'm like, yes, result. So um, uh, yes, that's nearly as old as I am. And again, for people that can see us on YouTube, Dave, you're in really fetching pair of Alpine Stars riding pants because um, your delectable motorcycle is past that, parked outside and you're you're heading back to Holland on two wheels. Uh, yeah, in fact, when I get back here, I'm going to go back, uh, pack up, chuck everything uh, onto the bike, uh, uh, onto into the bike and ride up to Steyr first and then, you know, mosey on through Germany and look at pretty castles and stuff. You have... No Cormac GP with you this time? No, Cormac GP is off on his own wee adventure through uh, the Austrian Alps to um, uh, Memmingen, where we came from. But um, I'm going, uh, that's further west, I'm going east. As ever, the podcast is coming to you thanks to Fly Racing, of course, as well as Rental Street, all those accessories. Dave, we still need to get some Rental Street components on the BMW GS. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of using you as our guinea pig, really. Or Yeah, the, the funny thing is, like, Rental make uh, uh, parts for just about every bike, almost almost every bike except for the BMW GS, which is odd because you can get uh, spare parts for, you know, sort of accessories. Um, up the up the wazoo for the GS normally, yeah. <laughs> uh, but oh yeah, the special thanks to Fly Racing because I actually have my uh, been using wearing a pair of their gloves on the way down and very comfortable too. My hands are still in one piece. Did uh, was did they keep them dry? I mean, they kept them dry. They kept them dry in the soaking wet, which was uh, good. And they helped towards the only 3,000 words in motomatters.com last night. So I guess, uh, yeah, Fly Racing have contributed to decent coverage of the Grand Prix weekend. Indeed. Were you wearing them while you typed? I did not, <laughs> as the knuckle protection makes it quite difficult to type. I'm, I'm slightly fearful of this line of questioning, Neil, so I'm going to stop you right there before we ask what other activities Dave was doing with his gloves. Um, again, thanks to Sizzap. Uh, you know, it's the best way to keep track of your motorcycle as well as your buddy. So don't forget to check out Sizzap if you use the word paddock. When you download the app, then you'll get a discount. Guys, let's go straight into our moments from the weekend. Uh, for me, Fabio's move um, through the chicane. I know Jack Miller used the phrase that he rode like a granny because he was trying to save a little bit of the, the front tire for mid-race distance going through that particular chicane. Um, all the riders praised the, the grip, actually. Uh, they thought it wouldn't be a first skier chicane. It did end up being. Uh, but they were attacking it, and I thought for a chicane that essentially butchered such a nice part of the racing course, it was quite well fashioned i mean it had a dip in into the left 
people that we didn't see any crashes. Uh, riders seemed to really be able to attack it. So um, I thought um, the way Quasararo was able to line up Miller and make that move stick for second place. And we all know how tough it's overtaking has been this season. It was a, a pretty fancy move. So that was my moment. Neil, over to you. Well, just to comment on that move, I don't think we saw another one like that in any class uh, yesterday. So it was pretty unique. And also when I watched it at the time, I thought, oh, he's been planning this for ages because he can't pass him anywhere else. But actually, it was just um, pure thinking on the spot because I think he braked a bit late. Miller braked a bit early at that point because Miller was trying to line up the exit off the chicane. And uh, Fabio thought, oh, I'm in a bit hot here. I have to do something. And he basically just let his brakes off around the outside. And, uh, you know, it was a wonderful piece of improvisation. Um, the move of the day, I think, um, yesterday. Uh, yeah, I mean, it actually ended up being sort of... It, it, it encapsulated the story of the Grand Prix, if you like, because there was, you know, you, you, they were stuck between the soft front and the hard front, and the soft front meant you could get away early, but you had to manage it towards the end of the race. Uh, the two Ducatis, Peko and uh, Jack, both went with the soft front, so they were fast in the start. And but by the time um, Fabio Porta caught Jack, then his front was he was having to baby his front a little bit. Uh, Fabio went with the hard front, obviously, which was a good choice because he was coming from further back so um uh, he he knew he had to protect he had to to stop it from overheating he had to he had to go with the hard uh, also because he braked so hard he needed the, the support from the hard so he had more tire he could actually make the tire at that point of the race i think if it had happened early in the race maybe it didn't happen uh, but it was just an outstanding move yeah it was a great overtaking move guy but should you know should we have seen more i mean could we have expected more uh, I don't think it was that kind of a race. I think it was uh, it, it genuinely, uh, it was a tyre management race, but it wasn't, um, usually when we talk about tyre management race, it means you've got to get to the end with some rear tyre left. This race, it was, uh, you've got to get to the end, you've got to figure out which front tyre you're going to use, and you've got to plan your race uh, accordingly. Because what we saw was Peko took off like a scolded cat, um, uh, went off uh, into the distance. Fabio, he got lucky a few times, like with Jorge Martin, uh, for example, going through the, uh, going through the, chica going straight on at the sh uh, chicane. Um, but, you know, he had to build, he had to wait for a few laps and work his way forward. And so by the end, because we, the last lap, you were sort of like thinking, is he, you know, is he going to make it? Isn't he? He was closing and closing and closing. He was so much faster. So th those sort of races are more intellectually interesting than emotionally charging. Uh, but the, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it, I, I thought it was an interesting race, but not necessarily an absolute thriller. I know you two guys have picked moments of emotion for your moments of the Austrian Grand Prix. Um, you know, being a purist myself, I pick for the racing maneuver. But uh, Neil, um, is it your moment of the weekend? Did you select it because it was your you know, another chance to learn a bit of Thai in Park Fermi? Uh, it wasn't necessarily Somkiat Chantra's Park Fermi interview that I enjoyed. It was his appearance at the press conference afterwards. And because as we as we know, or anyone watching the Model Two race knows uh, Chantra was getting a pit board which said P2 okay uh, from his team with uh, well five laps to go for the final five laps. Iger is in the championship fight. He was leading. Somkiat Chantra's teammate isn't in the title fight. It made sense for him just to take a nice cam second but he still stuffed it up. Uh, Agura's inside with two corners to go and then Agura responded with uh, at, the, at the final corner to win the race and Afterwards, you know, Chantra was sort of laughing about it and being a bit coy. And then um, I think uh, one of your Dutch colleagues, Dave, um, Ivan van yeah. der Walk, Ivan, uh, sort Ivan, of, yeah. Yeah, pressed him, pressed Somcat, saying, you know, did you not see your pit board? And uh, Somcat said, oh, it said P2. Okay. Oh, because I just saw P2. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, which I thought was a, a nice little bit of on the spot thinking. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, but like, uh, Inaguro said afterwards, he was like, "Well, we're just going to have to get a bigger okay from Mizano." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thing. This is why, like, team orders in, mer in motorcycle racing seem absolute nonsense. They never work. Um, uh, I think we all remember the uh, what was it, M mapping eight or whatever that was on Jorge Lorenzo's uh, dashboard, which he proceeded to ignore for about 20 laps um that isn't how motorcycle racing works and he probably thought p2 okay but p1 better <laughs> yeah but david it's going to happen more isn't it i mean if maverick vinales is in a good position in the coming grand prix which you think he, he would be around Mazzano and, and aragon he's going to be he's going to have to help alesh because alesh is conceding points every grand prix likewise jack miller's had been a good wingman to pick up agnaya i mean as the races go on, he's not going to be challenging perhaps as strongly as he did in certain parts of the Grand Prix yesterday. Yeah, but I mean, there's a difference between uh, like giving up fifth uh, or giving up fourth for fifth and giving up a win. If Maverick Vinales is leading and Aleix is sort of quite close behind, he is not going to go aside. If it's if Maverick is on for his first win on an Aprilia, he is taking his first win on an Aprilia. They, 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 I mean, they don't race for money. They race for... For pride, I mean, you can't even play Monopoly with them without them throwing the board up into the air and uh, all the rest of it. These are intensely competitive people. They will not concede a position. It's the, well, we've got eight races still to go, or seven races. I kind of lost count seven. already. Seven races, apologies, yes. At the penultimate race, the final race, yes, you can absolutely think that Chandra will sit back, but seven races to go, or eight races to go at the, at the moment that he was still racing. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, and it's good that he did it. Well, one man desperate for team orders would be Fabio Quattararo. I mean, I think he's... Uh, <laughs> that would you make know. such a difference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, who was... Franco P16, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, who was getting all, all agitated in your book for the moment of the Grand Prix? I mean, my uh, moment of the Grand Prix was uh, during the presentation of the sprint, uh, of sprint races. Uh, Carmelo Espelade, Hervé Poncheval, and Jorge Viegas of the F uh, FIM were there. Um, uh, my uh, friend and former Eurosport colleague, Frank Wink, uh, uh, got up to ask um, Carmelo Espelade about a riders' union. And Carmelo sort of, uh, he gave a, a very tense answer. It, I wouldn't say he got angry, but he was very, very yeah. I no, think, he got, he got, yeah, he was that, very, he was very forceful. But afterwards, he said, you know, it wasn't really aimed at Frank, um, because Frank went up and, and talked to Carmelo afterwards, and he said, you know, it wasn't really aimed at you. It was aimed at all the people who were listening. It was a bit of theatre, so it wasn't real anger. It was the kind of theatre, like you know, we don't need to any of this uh, rider union nonsense. We've got the safety commission there, fine. And honestly. The, the uh, I think I've said this before, the uh, Safety Commission is the best way of preventing a rider union because the only thing that all of the riders agree on is um, is safety. Everything else they don't care about. I mean, I was talking to a team manager uh, after after the race and he was uh, about rider unions and he was like saying, um, uh, yeah, it's funny actually seeing them in the Safety Commission because they'll say one thing this year, oh yeah, we should definitely ban that because that's, cause that's really bad. And then next year they change to a different bike where that that particular th aspect gives them an advantage. If, no, 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 no. We can't ban this. No, we have to keep this. It's perfectly fine. So yeah, I, the, the, um, there are too many individual, and they're too individualistic. They're too ambitious. It's really difficult. Uh, MotoGP. I mean, it's a team sport, but it's not a team sport with riders. It's a, it's a team sport with a rider and his team, rather than football or uh, another team sport where you've got. Uh, 
11, 15, whatever people working together. Yeah, safety is common ground. Everything else, you're going to get a diverse spread of opinion. And I think that's what Carmelo was hinting at. Um, you know, riders, I think he almost tried to say that. And as he got more head up, the English kind of level of comprehension dipped. And I think he was trying to say that riders are always going to have opinions. And if you try to cater to everyone's opinion, you're never going to make everybody happy. But, you know, let's, let's move on to what I want to, you know, racing and results aside, the big talking point, of course, from the weekend um, was the news broken by our colleague, Oriol Podgetamon for motorsport.com, that MotoGP will enter sprint races at every Grand Prix next year, which Dave, you know, you've been talking to some people in the paddock and yeah. it's going to be around 21 Grand Prix. Um, as you said before on the podcast, Finland is still there, but we, that's largely a contractual issue. We yeah. expect Kimi Ring, because it doesn't exist, to vanish. Uh, well, the track, I mean, the track exists, but nothing else. Yes, uh, so, no uh, running water. Yeah, exactly. So we're looking at at least 40 Grand Prix starts uh, next year. Half points, half distance. Um, you know, we were slightly skeptical. That wasn't made very clear in the press conference, by the way, um, over the relevance of the Saturday race. Um, it seems it's not going to be classified as a Grand Prix win per se. Uh, the Sunday event will still be the major signature uh, moment of the weekend. That would be the thing that really stands in the statistics. But, uh, you know, everything else means probably the biggest change to Grand Prix racing since it first started, you know, in 1949. And, um, you know, we talked about it on a Paddock Pass podcast note shows. Um, guys, if you want to check that out, it's on Patreon. Please come and join us because we give the latest uh, news and views and, and everything from the racetrack as soon as we can in the media center, the that particular evening of each day uh what more can we say about it i mean we, we've seen a big surge of comments on social media um it took a little bit of getting used to i think uh you know but then like neil as you pointed out it was something that was kind of teased at Assen, wasn't it in the press conference it was asked about in the fan survey that was done so it's not a massive surprise but perhaps the way that it's been suddenly thrown in and there was a slight lack of diplomacy perhaps in the way that you know it was eventually brought to light was one of the issues. I guess so, yeah. I think um, there was an inkling that this was maybe being considered when Matt Burt asked, I think, Fabio Quattararo and Joanne Zarco in the ASIM press conference, the pre-event press conference, um, about the fan survey. And in that, there were things like, would you like to see the event jazzed up in certain respects? Would you like to see things like sprint races introduced? And I kind of thought at that point, okay, they must actually be really using this survey to try and think of ways to like innovate or streamline or you know, jazz the, the, the whole spectacle up. Um, I think there does seem to have been a bit of an issue in that they didn't relate this thought to uh, the riders. They did to the teams and therefore they thought the teams would relay this on to the riders. But um, you know, it seems that they could have done it to the riders as well considering they're the ones that are going to be putting on the show on the Saturday. Um, but um, with regards to the idea overall, I mean, I think um, my first reaction to it was it would be cool and interesting if we had it for six rounds, let's say, of the 20 or five, kind of like Formula One does, where it's not every week, it's not even every other week. Um, it's kind of like a special occasion in the calendar. You've got five, six events where you're looking at it thinking, okay, this is a big opportunity for me to gain big points at this track. Um, but I think the the fact that it's happening at all 20 races will have 40 races next year. I mean, it does sound kind of crazy at the moment. But then there's part of me which thinks it's just something we'll get used to and will become part of the norm. 
three things. And from the press conference that, you know, was attended by Carmelo Espeleta, we had Jorge Poncharao's head of Erta as well, giving his opinions and Jorge Villegas, because I think he needed to have his photo taken at some particular time over the weekend. Um, it was stressed that, you know, MotoGP wanted to create more interest. That was the phrase that popped up quite a lot. Um, Hervé was quick to stress as well that it wouldn't be any anything extra in terms of mileage or resources or economics. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty much parity in terms of the the physical activity on the track. And lastly, I think, you know, Dave, I don't know who you spoke to particularly or specifically over the weekend, but teams and riders or crew chiefs and teams rather are still trying to get their heads around how they will organize this because it will mean a whole strategic approach to the weekend, not just for tire allocation, but also for mental, physical prep and, and how the teams go about qualifying because we're going to lose, of course, your favorite session, FP4. Uh, it's it's going to be a real big shift, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's going to totally change it. I uh, spoke in some depth with uh, Ramon Forcada about uh, about it. <laughs> the most interesting comment he made was, uh, when they think about these changes, they talk to uh, they talk to team managers, they talk to factory bosses, they don't talk to us, the technicians. They don't talk to the people who have to set the bike up. Um, uh, he said, you know, there's going to be a problem with soft tires. I think they have seven, uh, seven soft tires uh, next year. Um, I asked Michelin, Michelin said basically there'll be no change in the allocation. But if you've got FP1 and FP2, you could want a soft tire and FP1 for, to set a time. You could want soft tire and FP2 to set a time. Those two sessions are going to be one hour plus, uh, they're, they're going to be one hour long, which basically means 40 minutes plus 20 minutes of, from. Um, uh, uh, hooning around trying to set a time. Uh, then you're going to want uh, two soft tires for Q2, maybe two soft tires for Q1 if you're going through Q1. Uh, then you've got the sprint race. That's a, a, another soft tire. That's basically your allocation. Uh, it means if the soft tire looks like being the tire for the race, you're going to have to be very careful about trying to uh, uh, trying to keep it. So that's that's one of those things. The other uh, the other point that um, uh, one team manager made to me was. Fuel. I mean, you better hope that they cut the fuel allowance in half as well, because if they're allowed to uh, race with 22 liters, uh, I mean, they won't put 22 liters in, but they could put sort of 12 or 13 instead of uh, instead of 11 in. And what that does is it just it would turn the the, the Ducatis into absolute rocket ships. There's no need to to, to turn the power down. Um, also, because it's a sprint race, it's going to reward the bikes which qualify best uh, and. Which bikes have been qualifying best? The Ducatis. The Ducatis have been absolutely dominating qualifying. Um, Fabio has held his own. He's done extremely well. Um, uh, but if it turns into, you know, basically Ducati, eight, the Ducati getting the first five, six places every single sprint race, um, then that's going to turn a lot of people off, including some, some of the other manufacturers may find it a lot less, uh, interesting to, to, to set up. But it's, they're going to have to change the, change the setup of the bike. They're going to have to change, um, uh, the, the approach to it. They have less time to actually work on setup that means that if you turn up on monday or on, on on friday and your bike works you're sorted if you turn up and you've got a problem there is just no way to fix it you're not going to have or you're going to have to look into a fix so a bit like pecco did i mean pecco turned up and he had real problems with his with the rear tire because they have a special construction here um they found a solution uh, his crew chief christian gabarini you know found a solution for him uh, but if he hadn't then uh pecco would have done badly on sunday but then maybe also badly on on saturday one last thing 
Um, one team management has said to me, if this is about attendance, because it does seem to be much more about action at the track rather than yeah. on TV, uh, uh, if this is really about raising interest at tracks where the uh, where uh, things are going poorly, then why do 20, you know, why do it at every Grand Prix? Why not do it at those races where attendance is yeah, poor? Yeah, like so, Mugello or yeah, Silverstone. Take or, it to Mugello. Yeah, see if Austin. more people to Yeah, yeah, exactly. Take it there. See, And for example, Austin, yeah. I mean, it, it costs a fortune to go there. You might as well get the maximum out of it by having more racing there rather than, uh, you know, Aston... The place is packed anyway. Saxon Ring, the place is packed anyway. Here, the place is packed. It's a fantastic event already. I mean, sure, I'm sure the fans at Aston would love a sprint race as well, uh, but it's not going to make any difference to the attendance. You know, like five people, extra people might turn up. However, at Silverstone or Mugello, it might make a significant difference. But you can't really tell if you're you're doing it sort of everywhere. It would be better just to do it in one place. Yeah, I mean, um, I spoke to uh, Paul Trevathan, Miguel Oliveira's crew chief yesterday, and he was just quite interested about some of the issues that it might cause that might arise next year. Kind of what Dave was saying, if you go into the season and your bike is not right, then you're in you're in deep trouble because he said basically this will just kill attempting to develop a bike over a race weekend. That is no longer going to be feasible. And there's no and there's no testing either. I mean, the, 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 you know, official testing yeah, is limited. Marginal. Yeah, uh, yeah, eight days, eight days of, of testing with official riders over, over the entire season. That's not very much. So, you know, you can't test on a race weekend. You can't really test during the season. When are you supposed to test the bike and develop a bike? Yeah, because you've essentially just got two sessions on a Friday to try and adapt the bike to those conditions, to that track, to that track surface, to the weather, to assess tires. I mean, uh, forget about trying to back-to-back certain things as well he also said as Dave kind of mentioned you know if you show up with a ready-made bike that is pretty handy on a Friday then that's going to be a big big bonus I think we can say Fabio Quattararo every time we've gone to the circuit this year has been fast right out of the blocks to Friday and then it's almost as though the other machines have kind of caught up to him after that um, so that could be something that could work in Yamaha's favor um, Fabio Quattararo sorry Fabio Quattararo's favor yeah um, and uh, he was just saying then about the stress not just the stress in the technicians and me- the mechanics um, but the stress in the riders he was saying even having worked a little bit with Danny Pedros in the last couple of years KTM's test rider he was saying even someone with Pedros's experience someone with Pedros's pedigree a double world cha- sorry a triple world champion a guy that's fought for MotoGP titles on several occasions he would find the stress of trying to get through free practice sessions too much to a point that he stopped enjoying it. Arm pump and, and everything. That yeah. was, uh, arm pump is interesting. I try. I uh, uh, I saw Doctor Zaza, the head of the Clinica Mobile, as he was leaving the, the circuit on Sunday night, and I said, I asked him, you know, what are your thoughts on this in terms of arm pump? And he said, arm pump is a very sensitive subject. I don't want to make any comment about it. So there you go. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's already a big problem. I mean, uh, I spoke to uh, I think Andrea Vergani from. Um, Brembo earlier and he said yeah arm pump is already a massive issue just the physical loads were already appre- approaching the uh, f- uh, the end of what a physical of hu- what the human body is is capable of uh, and this is just going to add even more stress now the throttle goes both ways uh, and in fact it might end up with people taking it a little bit easier 
managing themselves over the weekend. Though. The other the factor is, David, sorry to cut you across you know earlier, but um, you know, with points only down to was it ninth position, tenth, top ten, oh. you might see these sprint races, for example, twenty eight laps in Red Bull Ring will be fourteen next year on the Saturday. After five or six laps, people would maybe be start to coasting. You know, if they're not in point scoring positions, it doesn't matter for grid positions, then you know, you could just see a, literally a sprint for five to six laps and then, you know, the half of the field are going to be thinking, well, this isn't really worth, you know, pinning the throttle anymore. But I think it's going to be worth going and watching a few of those uh, Super Bowl races. Although a Super Bowl race is different because, you know, it really does count. Uh, it also sets your grid position. But it's going to be interesting. It will be interesting to actually look at the, uh, analyze the lap times of the riders who are further down the grid to see if they do, you know, yeah. back off a little bit in the second half of the sprint race. And do... Do the sprint races in superbikes, I mean, um, I mean, do they throw up lots of random odd results? I mean, from what I can see in the last couple of years, it's still Bautista, Toprak, Johnny, uh, the guys at the front fighting. Yeah, but yes. sometimes Toprak wins and sometimes okay. Johnny wins. Yes, exactly. And sometimes Alvaro wins. Exactly. So we're not really seeing the sprint race format throw the kind of World Superbike Championship wide open, I don't think. It's just giving those guys more opportunities yeah. to win. And <clears throat> I'm not... I'm not slagging the concept. I'm, I mean, it's a, an extra race and superbike racing is fantastic at the moment. So it's another opportunity to see those guys fighting together. But the the idea that we might start seeing random winners is, uh, I don't know if that's really going to come to pass. I think it's going to be the same guys fighting the front. Maybe we'll have one or two or three extra winners a year, but I don't think it's going to turn the thing upside down. There are many layers to this thing. I mean, Carmelo Espeleta again says there are interests already from the, the TV broadcasters that, you know, have contractual deals with Dorna for MotoGP. Um, you know, we've spoken about the riders. I mean, for example, I asked Paulo Spargaro, I said, double the races. Does that mean more opportunity to get yourself sorted out with the bike or is it double the frustration? Because he's living it at the moment of HRC, isn't he? Again, it might be more advantage for the Europeans that can react quicker, introduce different concepts for a chassis or refinements, modifications, whatever. And, we, and at the moment, even Mark Marquez, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, was talking about this in his press conference that there is a bit of a cultural working shift going on at MotoGP at the moment. So it could be another instance in where the likes of Ducati, Aprilia and KTM are able to, to forge some sort of advantage. Yeah, I mean, you see the way that Ducati works. Um, they completely understand what's going on. They've got eight bikes, so that's eight bikes worth of data. Uh, they've got Joan Zarco, who's literally a test mule. Uh, again, today, this or uh, this weekend, he had um, some aero in front of the uh, at the bottom of the fairing. Uh, not quite sure what it does, but you know that you know that Gigi Delina knows what it does. You know that he's playing with it. You know that it matters, that it's going to be important. Um, the fact that he can literally afford to sacrifice Shoan Zarco to test these sort of things out, um, as he's done with Jack Miller in the past, as he's done with, uh, I think, Danilo Petrucci as well. There was always, like, the, the second pram out, or one of the pram out seats is always the, 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 the test rider. Um, Ducati have completely understand how to maximize the uh, performance from or maximize the format to get the best out of their bikes and the best out of the, the championship. However, of course, we still haven't had a uh, Ducati world champion. Is, was it designed to keep Zarko away from other riders going up to turn three, Dave? Maybe yeah. that was what, you know, that's, that was the uh, the testing purpose of it. And that was um, the chicane. <laughs> yeah. that's, what, that's why that was put in. Yeah, the Zarko chicane. I mean, he said it should be named after him. And uh, it was, I think he was only half joking. Uh, just to wrap this subject, um, I think Pekka Bagnaya said it quite nicely. He can't really give any judgment on it until he's actually tried one. 
Um, and I think it will take a couple of seasons for people to get their head around what MotoGP sprint races involves or whether it's attractive or whether it does anything. Like we said on the note show day, for me, I think the most obvious thing is the people at the tracks were going to be the main winners because they're going to get some more bona fide, authentic race action compared to just qualifying or fast paced laps where sometimes it's hard to deduce who's really pushing or not. You know, I mean, especially Neil, Moto2, Moto3, now staying on the racing line dropping your pace is a really sort of big subject so it's uh i think a race situation is is ideal on that aspect yeah i think it's good for the people going to the tracks i remember saying this when superbike were introducing their third race the sprint race and putting the first race of the weekend on saturdays from a viewing point of view i remember when i was a fan and watching the races from home you know a weekend for most people is kind of a time when you're not working and a time when you're maybe doing things you're seeing family you're seeing your kids you're taking them out to wherever you're doing something that maybe doesn't involve sitting at home if you work from home or whatever saturdays are maybe not the days that you're setting aside to sit at home and watch a race you know so i'm not sure the the television figures will be impacted in a big way sunday for a lot of people i think is a day where you sit at home and you watch your sport and you watch your race maybe in the morning and uh, over lunchtime and then do something in the afternoon i don't know whether that might uh, affect the viewing figures but uh, people at the track will definitely have more to watch yeah, on the other hand uh if you do have a social engagement on the sunday then maybe you can't watch the start on the sunday but maybe you then can watch it on the uh, on the saturday so you at least you get something but i think uh, you know i broadly agree it's not i don't it's not going to bring in you know 200 million more uh, new fans but it might uh, create a better spectacle at the track. But um, I, I, honestly, it's one of those things you, we, we don't know what we're talking about because we haven't seen it in action yet. We have to wait till it happens. And of course, Harvey Pontreal said in the press conference announcing this on Friday that this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's going to be other plans, other novelties brought in to spice up affairs. So I feel we're going to have another couple of these uh, press conferences in the next, I don't know, half year, year perhaps, uh, announcing a change of format and way that we do our jobs the way that we watch the sport. Valentino Rossi is no longer part of MotoGP. So I guess now is, you know, the time when they're looking at MotoGP thinking, how can we modernize? And let's face it, every other world championship, significant world championship motorsport has tried some sort of format change, uh, whether it's on road or, you know, NASCAR, whatever. It's, um, you know, there has been experimentation. And let's be honest, guys, maybe not for TV viewing figures, but on Saturday, if there's a particularly fantastic battle between Pecco Bagnai and Fabio Quattararo, then it's going to be all over social media, um, any of those fantastic images we see from the likes of shoulder cams and whatever else is, it's just more, uh, content yeah. as well. Yeah. More which, content, you know, more hype. Don't yeah, more say the C on this podcast, please. <laughs> no, I saved that for the off mic moments. No, don't worry. <laughs> uh yeah so spring races we like you know we've just touched on it i'm sure we'll have some more opinions um you know we've had quite a concise press release already from dorna saying how things will run next year but then you know we're still going to be talking about this further into the season of course and um you know teams like we mentioned teams and riders are going to start to think about this and how they're going to tackle it so this is something that's going to be bubbling under and we'll come back to it and just one final thing on this issue if you're uh, one of our patron subscribers uh, steve english and gordon ritchie from uh, world super Point, world super Bike paddock have done a special patreon show in which they uh, summarize how they feel sprint races have affected that championship so check that out for me guys just to round off in my opinion i'm just happy that sunday stays as a grand prix I mean, if we started counting double races and moved in the superbike direction, 
or the Saturday sprint was given kind of importance, then that's dilution um, of, of MotoGP. Sunday's a thing. That's going to happen anyway because people can't be bothered. There's going to be, they're going to start off with a separate column of statistics that's going to last two seasons, and then people just, especially fans, they don't care. They're, go- they're going to stop caring that it was the sprint race. They're just going to count it all as Grand Prix victories, full stop. It's just, that's, that's, just yeah, the way that the human don't even give it a press conference on Saturday day just you know give it have a bottle of champagne there you go well done Jack Miller crashes on Saturday but he wins on Sunday you're the Grand Prix winner that's what we have well, to let, do. Well, we have to wait and see just before we tuck into the other subjects here on the podcast this week uh, we're going to take a, a quick small ad break Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 Glove with molded hard knuckle protection this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Renthal Street Ultra Light Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're going to launch into the second of our talking points from the Grand Prix of Austria, Dave Yamaha. Well, Yamaha or Fabio Quartararo. Um, Quartararo is riding out of his skin. Uh, he is, uh, as Alay said on Saturday, clearly the best rider on the grid. He's riding the best. Um, Quartararo himself was relatively, you know, he was modest for a MotoGP racer uh, about it. He says, I don't like to say, you know, who's riding the best or whatever. Um, but he's clearly uh, uh, compensating. If you look at where everyone else was, Franco, Mor- uh, Franco Morbidelli afterwards said that he felt he had a good weekend, he'd made progress, uh, despite crashing out. But I think he was like 17 or 18 seconds after 20 laps when he crashed out. That's a long way back. First, uh, Yamaha was uh, Andre Dovizioso scoring a single point 30 seconds behind. Um, Yamaha were in real trouble without Fabio Quartararo. Fabio Quartararo, this this is Fabio Quartararo winning, finding a way to use the bike. And he says himself, he's running on the limit all of the time. There is no, he has no margin. He's making mistakes. When he makes mistakes, he's having to save them every single time. Um, the, the genius is, his his genius is that he can do that and not fall off a bit. It, it's very Marquez-esque in the same way that Marquez was riding over the limit all of the time. Uh, and always managing to to save. I mean, you know, he has a cat, uh, an entire. You could make sort of fill six hours with Mark Marquez saves. I think uh, Fabio's saves are smaller, less noticeable, but he's still doing them because he's pushing the bike so hard to to, to keep up with people. You live on the edge, Dave. Eventually, you're going to fall off it, though. Uh, yeah, but I think you see. I think I mean, obviously, like Mark would fall off during re- uh, qualifying or practice, so that he knew where not to fall off in the race. Uh, Fabio doesn't fall off. He doesn't uh, like falling off. He gets 
Um, so I don't think he's got his toes quite so far over the, the, the precipice sort of thing. You felt that Mark was living with, you know, the balls of his feet well, sort of dangling over the void. Whereas, uh, Fabio Quartararo has just got his tippy toes over, uh, just to make sure that he knows that that's exactly where the limit is and that's where, where to go. So I, he doesn't look like He's going to make a big mistake. At some point, he may crash out of race. You know, we've we've seen him make mistakes before, but um, it, he seems to be able to control the bike. And we all, I mean, like uh, I hate to brag, but we, <laughs> all, but we all say, well, uh, he took him thirty minutes into yeah, the podcast. Exactly. Uh, uh, but, but you know, everyone, everyone saying, you know, this is a Ducati track. Sure, it's a Ducati track. What? What business does Fabio Quartararo have being where he is, being second, hunting down Pekka Banyaya, almost winning the race, being in, or well, at least being in with a shot of winning the race? That is, um, it is obviously mostly Quartararo. The bike will do what he can do. The smart thing that they did was uh, gear it lower. We're talking about the, uh, the, the chicane first second. What they did was gear the bike lower. That meant that they could uh, get more thrust and more drive. It meant that uh, Fabio could at least stick with the Ducatis in the lower gears. And having that chicane in there, it it meant you had two shorter accelerations rather than one big long acceleration. It just gave him a little bit of an edge to be able to stay with the Ducatis. I, I think it was some Emmett prediction power as well helping Fabio along there, Neil. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. You know, yeah, trying we, to we, spare his blushes. We don't like to concede much when Dave when Dave's right. He does tend to be quite spectacularly right. So we'll give you that, Dave. Um, two things quickly. I mean, Lynn Jarvis was interviewed by Simon Crowfire direct. I think as he was walking towards Part Ferme. Um, the, the only thing he could really say, maybe reading too much into it, is we need to give Fabio more. You know, he needs more. And I thought that was uh, quite a telling comment, really, rather than praising his ability. It was more like the situation at a track where Yamaha have had something of a checkered history in the last eight Grand Prix before. Um, it was telling that, you know, right, something has to change. Something has to move. And also just a quick word on Darren Binder. Um, he was, you know, haunting the top 10 before he crashed. Maybe something to do with the fact that he had news this weekend that he doesn't have a ride for next year and maybe thought, well, fuck it. Yeah, I think uh, firstly, the the Jarvis thing, I mean, he's made no secret of, um, I guess, his reticence this year. Um, I spoke to him back at Le Mans and he was almost yeah, reticent um, with regards to the Quadrile apologetic that uh, he finds himself in this situation as a reigning champion and Yamaha are basically riding with the same package that they had last year. Um and they know, I mean, you just have to look at the results. Jarvis isn't isn't stupid by any stretch. He's uh, He knows what the score is. He knows that this guy is basically keeping them afloat. And if he wasn't, if it wasn't for him, they'd be talking about the season as bad and abject as Honda's. Um, so I think that's just him being pragmatic. Um, and then Darren Binder, you know, great ride, great start. Was up there fighting with Franco Morbidelli. Um, I think he is maybe not being appreciated enough for what he's been doing this season. Um, Someone yes. from inside the team's made that very point to me. Yeah. He crashed out, obviously, but I still think that uh, that it's uh, that it's a shame. Um, and I think someone was also saying, um, it might have been you, Dave, actually, over the weekend, that um, had that team not switched to Aprilia, had they stayed with Yamaha for another year, I think Darren would be doing enough Yamaha, to keep the ride. Yeah, Yamaha would recognise that he is actually doing enough to keep the ride, but Aprilia obviously have a a different way of seeing things and uh, they want to maybe start afresh with a, an all-new lineup. David, uh, Yamaha caught in a strange situation because they're only going to have two bikes on the grid next year, but then they have the best rider, not just our thoughts, but even Alessia Spargaro saying that Fabio is unbeatable and on another machine will probably be, you know, five seconds further up the track. 
but you know they they need to invest in this guy and they need to help him um you know they've got more specialists in they're trying to push yamaha to improve the m1 certainly in terms of top speed but then just having two bikes on the grid next year means a reduced effort reduced presence uh, and even yeah. If you want to get panicky, you think, well, what does that mean for the future of Yamaha and MotoGP? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, to me, Yamaha are absolutely committed to, uh, to MotoGP. I don't think, I don't see them pulling out the way that Suzuki have done. Uh, I think it is clear that, um, as long as they, I mean, why would they pull out as long as they've got Fabio Quattararo? And Fabio Quattararo seems to believe in the project. Uh, they are, the, the, the Misano test, the two day Misano test Tuesday and Wednesday is going to be very important. They'll be bringing a new bike. It, um, because basically they're still running with the 2020 engine because the 2022 engine kept, you know, wasn't reliable enough. They should bring more power. They should bring a better bike. Uh, from what I've heard from around Yamaha, that new bike is a significant step. Um, uh, they're still lagging behind. But yeah, I mean, like I talking about Ducati earlier about the way that they use all of those bikes on the grid to help push the project forward. That is really the problem which Yamaha faces. And it's hard to see how they, uh, uh how they solve that without significant uh, committal of, of resources. Um, even if the resources are just here, Fabio, here's some more money. We'll talk about Yamaha a bit more after the Mizano show. One more thing we should talk about, Neil, is uh, was it quite telling that when Mark Marquez gave his, his press conference uh, on Thursday, Friday, Thursday, Thursday um, that, you know, uh, hurricanes started blowing through the paddock. Uh, does that mean that he's back or there's a new wind coming into MotoGP? Uh, how did you read uh, that? Yeah, you can read it in various different ways. You could say that, um, you know, Mark's just presence, almost collapsed. <laughs> Mark's presence is, uh, is something of a hurricane force that blows through the paddock and sweeps all away before him. You could also say that uh, that is kind of endemic or uh, yeah, sort of uh, says a lot about what has been happening to Mark even when he's giving a, an update on his uh, current physical condition. The HRC hospitality nearly blows down over his head and <laughs> risks all of our lives in the process. But um, yeah, obviously we had uh, the press conference on Thursday. Mark was there all weekend to give us a bit of an update both in terms of his physical condition, his potential comeback and also what he wants to see different from HRC um, and Honda, their working methods, their changes to the bike. Um, and uh, big weekend for him in some respects. Obviously, the news as well that he split from his uh, manager of, uh, what, 16, 17 years, Emilio Alzamora. Uh, he will no longer be managing the uh, the interests of the Marquez brothers. Yeah, to me, that's quite, that was um, big news. I think it's also like a refocusing for Marquez. Uh, he was very clear that, you know, basically, um, what Honda were doing weren't good enough. He was very diplomatic about it, but that was what he said. And he had, the, the reason he came to Austria was basically to shout at HRC to tell them to buck their ideas up because they can't go on like this. And you see it in the, in the results. I don't think they scored a single. 14th for Alex yeah. Marquez. Yeah. Oh, well, don't steal my loser of the weekend. All right. I won't. But, uh, uh yeah, yeah, I mean, but even, uh, do you know who the best placed, um, uh, Honda rider is in, in, in the championship at the moment? McDoan. No, no. <laughs> Mark well Spencer. Be. No, no. It, I mean, it is still, uh, it's still Mark Marcus. Mark Marcus is still the best Honda rider. That's I mean, incredible, isn't it? It is. It is absolutely incredible when you think about it. I uh, that for me, Dave. That was the most interesting part of the press conference. He wants a concept change. HRC. I do wonder if even Mark Marcus, that's you know, a step too far for a, a figure or an athlete of his capability. I mean, he was there showing off his scars to TV stations. The, the limited interviews that he did. But as you say, I think his presence was a reminder. Look, you know, I'm here. I'm training. I'm going to be ready. 
Uh, but you know, you need to buck up your ideas as well. Yeah, I mean, and also there's been a lot of pr- criticism with amongst fans and in the press of Alberto Puge, but Alberto Puge is uh, the monkey, not the organ grinder. Uh, I think uh, Alberto Puge is doing his job fine. There's not a lot wrong with it. The problem is at the next level up, is at the senior level of HRC, and I suspect as um, uh, I was talking to Peter Bomb about, uh, about it, and Peter Bomb said, um, "Yeah, I think he's going to be designing the rear brake for Honda's next scooter." Um, so yeah, <laughs> this is this is what it looks. Like. It looks like uh, there's at some point there has to be a change at the very highest levels of uh, of HRC. They're the people who are responsible. They're the people who have the actual power to change anything. Mark was obviously drawing the comparisons to Ducati. Aprilia, KTM, how they've changed the game in terms of their test teams, how aggressively they test and how they operate. We don't have much testing, as we mentioned previously in the show. It is absolutely critical that you get that aspect of the thing in line and right, the kind of communication between the test team, the factory, the race team and the factory. That's something that's missing, I guess you could say, with um, all the Japanese factories are present. Lastly on Mark, do we see him racing before the end of the year? I, I think we'll see him testing. But uh, do we see him racing? Yes. And does he need to be racing? Yes. Yes to both of those. Yes, he needs to be racing, uh, but he needs to be racing as late as possible. Uh, like, you know, we've got the Mizano test coming up. It would be madness. I think he's, later this week he has a uh, another check with the, with the doctors. Even if the doctors say, yeah, okay, the bone is healing properly, you can really start to stress it. To race at Mizano would be just sheer madness. Um, uh, I think if he were to race at say Valencia ahead of the Valencia test that would be very smart because again he would just get the sensation of the of speed he would get to understand the current bike and then on the Tuesday jump on the new bike and uh, be able to say yeah this is better this is better this needs work that needs work um you know maybe he comes back before maybe he comes back at Sepang as well but the, yes I think he will be racing and I think he needs I think he needs to race but only if he's fit enough, if, if he's not fit enough, if the, if the arm still needs time, he has to give the, the arm time because otherwise his career is over. Yes, he said he's been conservative with his comeback. Um, if he's needed to take an extra week uh, or two um, in his rehabilitation before starting a different set of exercises, then he's taken that week or two weeks because, as Dave said, he is absolutely aware that this is this is the last chance saloon. Um, you know, he said at the end of the day, it's still... His arm is, is coming along well, but it's still an arm that's been operated on four times in the last two years, just over two years. Um, I think it makes sense. Valencia, you could also say Sepang makes sense as well because we'll be going testing there next February. If he rides at the final two races of this year, he'll then have uh, direct experience of this year's bike at that track when he tests there, both at Valencia in November and then Sepang in February. So, you know, you would say it would be very, very useful for him if the risk isn't absolutely paramount. Winners and losers, and just to compound, you know, this talk of changing concepts and how MotoGP teams need to shift their their MO. Uh, you know, I'm picking Honda as my loser, not just for the fact that Alex Marquez was the top runner in 14th place, but the fact that you know um, Paul Espargaro, um, you know, confirmed to jump out of um, HRC next year for Gas Gas. That was another newsworthy item from the weekend. Essentially, a rebranding exercise rather than any new technology, uh, which I would say limits the interest somewhat. I mean, it's still going to be a KTM RC16. It will be called something else. But um, Paul returning very much to the fold where he made his um, uh, second coming, if you like, in MotoGP. But um, Dave, his replacement, 
uh, Joanne Mir uh, high siding out on the first lap, breaking it. Or well, I, we're, we're not quite sure. I think yeah, not quite sure if there's a fracture. He certainly damaged the li- damaged ligaments in his ankle. Things yeah, I mean things are re- going really really badly for Joanne Mir right now. Yeah. Also, if he's if he signed an HRC contract, then wow, you know, you hope that's not going to be a, a worse injury that might reflect any kind of testing preparation come the end of the season, which is not that far away. Uh, Neil, over to you. Who is it that dropped the ball spectacularly at Red Bull Ring? Uh, dropped the ball spectacularly. I don't think we could uh, we could say that this particular person dropped the ball spectacularly, but I think they come away from the Red Bull Ring as a big loser, and that's uh, Remy Gardner. I mean, it's pretty much known now that Remy's out of KTM MotoGP next year. Um, it's obviously it's not been a great rookie season but I think there have been mitigating factors but clearly KTM have just said nope you know what we've offered Miguel Oliveira a new contract to stay in the gas gas squad and if not him then we'll look elsewhere um, Gardner said to us yesterday that he thinks his, his MotoGP options are, are, are next to none um, I heard through the grapevine that he's no interest in going to Model 2 so I think it would be quite a sad end and quite a premature exit I mean giving up early on a guy that I think has shown a lot of Potential, a lot of good form, won uh, Moto 2 Championship yeah, really Mo- brilliantly yeah. last year. Yeah. and Still reigning Moto 2 World Champion. And, and won it really impressively. Um, yeah, I guess Remy can probably look back at it and think there's a few things I could do differently. Maybe a few things when I was critical of the bike that I shouldn't have said. You know how KTM really, really don't stand for that. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a shame. Yeah, I agree. Um, just quickly on that, in my perspective, before people start throwing the sponge, particularly on social media, there's obviously a lot more to this than, you know, the results haven't been good enough or, or maybe some of Remy's comments. Um, the fact that he links so effectively with Akiayo, who we know is a renowned man manager last year, uh, that shows that, you know, sometimes riders blend with teams and packages at the right time and they don't fit in other places. So I think there's a lot more under the current and behind the scenes to, to this decision by KTM to completely change their rider lineup. We knew about Ralph Fernandez, of course, you know, even from the end of last season, he was supposed to stay in Moto2. Uh, he had overtures from other manufacturers, so KTM gave him the berth in MotoGP to placate him, but it wasn't enough. But for Remy, you know, you can look at it. Maybe he should have been given another shot, but then there are also other circumstances I think have led to this move. So, uh, yeah, tough for the Australian. Dave, who was uh, your loser from the Grand Prix? My loser is uh, a little bit of a surprise. It's Aprilia. Um, we've, for a, throughout the season, we've been talking about, you know, maybe Aprilia is the best bike on the grid. We come to a track where there's a different rear tyre with a stiffer casing or a more heat-resistant casing uh, to cope with the stresses, and the bike doesn't work uh, as well as it does. The Ducati works really well, whatever tyre you stick at it. So uh, they lose out to Ducati. They take a they take a second place in best bike on the grid uh, competition. Dave, your 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 standards are way too high. <laughs> I get I, I have a Lesh down as my winner from the weekend. Oh yeah, the guy I mean, comes he, off the bike several times through a practice. Yeah. Uh, he's nursing a slight injury from the former race. No. His whole shot device doesn't work. Lesh isn't Aprilia. Uh, well, okay. Aprilia What's still he, gets uh, sixth place at one of their bogey circuits in yeah, the yeah, yeah, yes, and yes, they improved we, their best we were, result but, at that track by four places. <laughs> this is true, but we were expecting better. We were expecting. We thought the bike was perfect. It's not perfect. So uh, for me, uh, that's my. I mean, I could have, I, I could have gone for a much easier one, but this is much more interesting. When you say we expected, you mean you expected? Yes. And does that mean that you're admitting that not I all of wrong. your preseason or all pre-race predictions yeah, exactly. were correct? Okay, good. Super quickly, in the battle of Ducati Course 2023, Bastianini and Martin 
who was the loser in that aspect? I think they both lost. Uh, I think uh, what happened with Bastianini was he ran wide, he ran over a curb, it dinged his ring, uh, he got a flat, uh, he got a flat front tire. Uh, Jorge Martin uh, just had a shocker of a race, really. I mean, he made a couple of mistakes and ended up crashing, and it was all it was all bad. So I think probably an A edges it, but it was you know it was very much a, a question of who lost the least. And the respective managers probably thought, damn, that's uh, an excuse not to ask for a little bit more cash when we do actually <laughs> sign the deal. Uh, Neil, it was almost a, a fantastic Grand Prix for Japan. Yeah, it was. I mean, we mentioned Aigura earlier when the Model Two race, um, and then of course I, sorry. Uh, Yuma Sasaki won the Model 3 race um, and he did it after serving two long lap penalties not just one um, I think this was I mean obviously his best race ever um, but um, just a fantastic ride he was leading when he took his first long lap penalty that demoted him to 17th he took another one that demoted him from 21st then I think he did four fastest laps new lap records in five laps got back among the leading group and then just uh, you know brought it home didn't show any sort of uh, signs of weakness on the final lap he didn't flap around and uh, I mean it was just a, a brilliant performance yeah I mean it was a brilliant ride but it does show that the uh, long lap penalty is pretty much pointless yes it does I mean Sasaki went from being crazy boy to bad boy back to crazy boy and probably beautiful boy in the eyes of Husqvarna um, lastly guys just to wrap things up um, Dave are you, your winner was um, Fabio my winner was Fabio for all of the reasons we've mentioned before he's riding out of his skin he's clearly the best rider on the grid I desperately hope that Mark Marquez comes back fit on a decent Honda and that uh, Yamaha give Fabio a really good bike because 2023 will be awesome uh, because Fabio is just I mean like you talk to anyone from Yamaha uh, even and I went to talk to some of the people in the RNF team they were saying Fabio is, what he's doing is just unreal and how he hasn't let his head drop. I mean, it would be so easy for him to get pissed off, down in the dumps, throw his That's toys right. out of the he's, pram. He but has he's so focused. He has a tool, and he's riding. He's using that tool to the absolute limit. He's not complaining about it. There's no point he complaining about, about it. it. Well, yeah. he's, he's complaining about it quietly. <laughs> but he's a bit, like he's complaining about it is not going to make him faster. The only thing that's going to make him faster is finding it within himself. And the mark of a truly great racer is uh, the, the ability to find more speed inside yourself. Yeah, I'd like to know how many hours Lynn Jarvis is acting as a footstool every Grand Prix <laughs> in Fabio's little private cabin. But uh, yeah, he must have been given some serious assurances. But uh, like you say, he's he's in peak form at the moment. Very last question on this podcast, guys, because we're in a Gasthof and um, we're, we're in a function room. Out. Yes, we're probably about to interrupt someone's family lunch. Um, the new chicane, changed Red Bull ring, changed lap times, changed average speed. Uh, are we in favour of it? Is that a winner or a loser from, from this event? Winner from this event, um, to quote Jack Miller, uh, now I nearly bloody died up at turn three, <laughs> so therefore it's a success. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. So it served its purpose. It wasn't the most, it's not the most spectacular bit of the championship off that track it does take away as we've mentioned i think countless times on the note show that wonderful kink just before turn three but that was so dangerous and so scary and we so nearly lost two MotoGP riders there last year uh, two years ago something had to change they did it and to be honest it wasn't as bad as i thought it was going to be no exactly it was functional yeah succinctly put i mean miller to quote him again also said it was the most arse clenching moment of the championship going through turn two uh but now it's turned to a and b and we'll, we'll have to get used to it uh big thanks to fly racing and rental street and also sizat for backing the uh the podcast we'll be back for doing a preview show of Mizano next week and then um we'll be sharing a pizza um in italy guys and then uh chewing over round 14 at Red gp this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler. 
It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. JB, I bet you're loving the fragmentation on this one. Yeah, yeah.